Let me begin this morning with a word of prayer to center us, to bind us. So let's, let's bow our heads. Creator God, help us to find in this morning your peace, to know that it is not our possession, but it is something that you grant and something that we wish to be, in, to be formed into. Help us to approach that peace with your love and your care, your concern for all. May our story be that story of your son. And may the time that we spend together be a time where we worship you and we are formed ourselves into that story together, that we are, will be a people who worship you uh, in the fullness of our lives in, in the midst of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it is Memorial Day weekend. I'm sure that many of you are aware of this. Uh, it is an observance that this country celebrates, that we celebrate, that makes clear that what we remember and how we remember matters. It matters for our understanding of the world. It matters for how we define ourselves. Memories are important. They're foundational for how we connect to our past and the relationships that we have with others. We can't have relationships with others without memories. But they also help build collective memory, social memory, memories that we all hold in common that bind us not only around specific memories, but how those memories are embedded in and shape our uh, common stories. To these memories, we build monuments, not simply as artifacts, but as integral elements to the stories that we tell. Of course, the monuments that we keep can sometimes seem inconsequential to others. They need a story to make sense. So for instance, in my desk at home, uh, I have this mint tin. These are actually called fish mints. You can see it. I don't know. These are or were, there's actually only one mint in here. Let me, let me look. Yeah, there's a mint and then the end of a tail. But they're Jesus-shaped mints, complete with a Bible verse on the inside. I wonder what you think the story is there. I wonder what you think this memento is a memento of, what you might imagine the memory that they hold. If I told you they were a memento, I just wonder how you would think they were memorialized. These mints, these are mints that, to tell you the story, that Marianne brought back for me from a trip to, that she made to Texas in late November 2010. So those of you who don't know, Marianne is, is my spouse. She's also a pastor on staff here. But in late 2010, she went to Texas for her sister's wedding. The reason that she brought these back is because she thought they were funny. I see these and I remember lots of things. I remember picking up Marianne from the airport. I remember that this came with a package containing Shinerbach. I also remember that this trip came right after I had gotten the nerve to tell Marianne that I think we should hang out more often in a dating fashion. And then she flew away to Texas right away before we even got a chance to go on a date. I remember the long phone calls from Texas. I hate long phone calls, but I remember just, you know, the over hour phone calls that she spent with me while in the midst of being home with her family. She probably should have been spending it with her family. I also remember reading into every single little thing that was communicated, or even when she didn't call me the night of the wedding, because I'm that paranoid and weird that I, for some reason in my mind, hoped she would call me 
on the night of her sister's wedding, which is she didn't. So that's a credit to her. I remember that we made plans for our first date on these phone calls. We went to a hockey game where there is another monument, the statue of Wayne Gretzky in front of Staples Center. Now I know that you may think that that is a monument to Wayne Gretzky, but now that I've invited you into that story, you can see that this Wayne Gretzky Memorial is actually part of a different story. I bet you didn't know that Wayne Gretzky, that Wayne Gretzky statue was a monument to love. So now you're in that story. You can read those monuments. We can share those memories. Maybe it's more important for me, but that's why I keep this tin. Monuments not only tell stories, but they invite us into stories. They invite us to be part of those stories. Whether for good or for bad, this can be for better or for worse. So we think of Confederate monuments, for instance. These memorials are to an imagined world of the past, but an imagined world of the past that creates a history that tells us who we are today and gives us a vision of who we should be. It reminds those who do not fit at the, fit at the center of that narrative of white supremacy, that is with Confederate monuments, that they do not belong. It is an attempt to tell and shape a social and collective memory. And today we find ourselves at the intersection of two, what I call, what I think are liturgical moments etched in time. Now, one we celebrate at PMC bi-weekly. I've actually talked about it in my last two sermons, which maybe tells you how important I think it is, but the Lord's Supper. And this is, of course, part of a cycle that re reoccurs. The things that we remember is actually part of a yearly calendar that we have where we relive and we make monuments to our history etched in time. From Advent through Pentecost, to Christ the King, Sunday back to Advent again. And at its center is sacrifice. At its center is God for us. God who emptied herself in Jesus and who took upon himself the injustice of the world and conquering over it in life and justness. Conquering it with life and not more sacrifice. A memorial that calls into question the redemptive violence of the world. And on the other hand, this weekend, we celebrate Memorial Day. This is also a liturgical moment etched in time, founded similarly on a call to sacrifice, an opening salvo for the liturgical season as it moves through Flag Day, Independence Day, and Memorial Day, not to mention Columbus Day, and based on some Christmas cards that I get, probably also Christmas. I got one with um, a snowman waving a flag from a family member not too long ago that reminded me how Christmas is now enveloped in this liturgical calendar as well. Memorial Day is a collective storytelling. It's a reminding and a reinforcing of a narrative that binds and builds a people around a rhetoric of foundational sacrifices and fit with religious symbols like the flag, which has a seeming religious aura about it and the pledge made to it. The songs, God Bless America, the Star Spangled Banner, we are told that calling into question this story or impugning these images or songs publicly is to dishonor the sacrifices. This rhetoric of sacrifices is always told, and I don't think by accident, but that is to dishonor the sacrifices of those who have given their lives for this power and principality. 
for US militarism. And certainly we are called, and I think this is right, we are called to honor all life, but we have to question whether this story does honor all life. We are called to honor all life, every person, showing compassion even to our enemy. And in that way, we become children of God. That is foundational. Uh, very simplistically, Jesus told me it was true, so I believe that. I'm sure there's more to it, but we can talk about that more later. But if you've ever doubted that the flag was a sign of U.S. militarism or state violence, the rhetoric around any perceived slight against it, around kneeling and protest during the anthem, in my mind, clarifies the matter. The concern for systemic injustice quickly fades into the background. The concern for systemic injustice, which led someone to kneel, to show concern, to cry out, quickly falls into the background and the rhetoric rather resounds about disrespecting the flag, disrespecting our troops, and about the dishonoring of all those who have sacrificed for our nation. Again, the foundational sacrifice is what unites us. And if we question that, that is where problems begin. In a nation built on the strange, faulty notion that we construct ourselves out of nothing, that we make stories out of having no stories, bound to nothing, to no one other than our own choices, where our national God is that of individual belief and choice, and we take that into our churches as well. And I don't leave us off that as well. What unites us is into a people apparently is an unquestionable sacrifice. That is the thing that unites us, the sacrifice of those who die for and at the expense of, though those who die at the expense of are often missed, but those who die for and at the expense of freedom, quote unquote, freedom, security, and U.S. national and economic interests. Whose sacrifice requires more sacrifices? Those initial sacrifices require more sacrifices in order to honor them and uphold them. U.S. militarism is the bond that makes the pluribus unum. As Stanley Hauerwas puts it, probably an appropriate voice, an on-the-nose voice, he writes, war is America's central liturgical act, necessary to renew our sense that we are a nation unlike other nations. War is what binds us together. We do not simply fight for U.S. interests. U.S. Americans, we tell ourselves, are responsible for the redemptive violence that brings freedom to the world. War is the altar on which U.S. American identity is formed. And on that altar, we are prepared to sacrifice ourselves. And I know that I'm making sweeping generalizations about the we and us, but we need to understand our place within this. And we all have different places within it, and I, I recognize that. But that altar is prepared for the sacrifice of ourselves, our neighbors, and those who threaten US interests around the world. And we cloak this in the pageantry of benevolent aggression, benevolent aggression. At the same time, we are told that the world hates the US because they despise our freedoms. Whenever there's an attack on the US, this is as deep as the critique goes that people hate us because of our freedoms. But as Howard Wass will also add, it may be the, that the other sense what Americans call freedom 
is bought at U.S. Americans, uh, call freedom, is bought at the expense of the lives of others. Much of this, of course, is preaching to the choir, I think, this morning. It does not take a lot of courage for me to say these things here, and I, I realize that. It's very self-confirming, but we'll see what happens when this gets out on the podcast, at least. Maybe I'll upset somebody there. But it's also still important, I think, just like Memorial Day preaches to the choir, that we make our marks in time, that we have our liturgical monuments etched in time, that we can convey our memorialization, telling a different story, that we do tell that different story. That is, as the ancient communion liturgy states, that we remember that we memorialize the death of Christ and all the ways it shapes our stories, right? That we memorialize the death of Christ by taking that death within us and within it finding new life. That the death of Christ in that memorialization tells a story about laying bare injustice, putting aside the cycle of sacrifice and death and adopting us into the household of God's peace and reconciliation always becoming, always becoming on the road as pilgrims, people of peace and justice. And so I find so central to this climactic moment that I find so central to this uh, story, this prophecy that I read from Zechariah today. What comes at the end, you'll notice the final word in this, it's the same way in the Greek, it is in the English, the last word of this prophecy, it all builds to peace. There is a story of God's liberation, a calling of people to live in righteousness and holiness, to save them from their enemies, the promise of light to those sitting in darkness, captivity. And at its pinnacle, we are promised that we will be guided in the way of peace. Now, to be guided in the way of peace, right? Not that we will grasp it or we will own it, or we will tell people what it is, that it is the that we have it as a property, like a commodity. Not that we are constructing peace out of ourselves. No, the peace of God is something that guides us and shapes us. Peace is not something that ever becomes our possession. It is something that we strive toward. It is like a river that sweeps us over and that shapes our world. That the peace of God is a pathway that we journey a pilgrim's way behind the state-executed criminal and seeker of justice, Jesus. That is our story. And it can thus never be the story of the violent executors, executioners of the world. That is our story. Dear God, teach us and guide us on the path of peace. May we have the courage to walk it because it is not easy and it is not peaceful. And the eyes to see it before us, for we need your guidance, God. I'm often tempted to defend this call to peace with theoretical ethics. This would be really fitting for PMC, I think, to sit here and wax with a reasoned argument about why peace is legitimate and it must be followed, a theological justification. But I have to admit that my basic reasoning and what brought me to this gospel of peace, as I think it is, is rather foolish and naive. It is not the wisdom of the world. 
It is foolishness. I always tell people I've been radicalized by Jesus. I simply have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus saves us. I have put my faith in Jesus, who is light and life and truth. And my sole hope is to follow him, to be guided by him. As God has revealed God's righteousness and justice in him to us. I have come to this place not because Jesus conforms to some rational, defensible pacifism that I have developed to fly in the face of all the just war theories that really can't work with the way states are today anyways. But in my poor simplicity, in my woeful naivete, I could just never see Jesus calling for a war in Iraq. That's what it began for me. This is the second Iraq war with the saber rattling after 9-11. I could not see Jesus selling weapons to the Saudis or Israelis. I could not see Jesus training right-wing guerrillas to support corrupt regimes in Latin America. I could not see Jesus putting his trust in chariots and horses. And so neither can I. So neither can I. I am here this morning because I'm here to worship the living God. And I believe this is what we're called to. We are here this morning to worship the God of peace, as Paul calls him. Paul calls her. We call us to be children in completeness and compassion. We are called to be children in completeness and compassion, in the love of our enemies, even. What a crazy notion. What a difficult notion. What a hard path. As Paul reminds us, our citizenship is not in the kingdoms of this world. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowliness, our lowly bodies into into that like his glorious body, the Philippians. But now, even today, we walk in that newness of life. Jesus says in his Nazareth sermon, today we walk in that. Today is the day that the Isianic vision becomes alive in the kingdom of God. That even if the whole world does not stop and throw down their weapons, that we will be a people of peace. That it is beneficial and worthy that there are a people that hold to peace and to life and to love, even in the midst of the darkness around us. So come, those of us among the nations, let us walk by the light of the Lord. Let us go to the mountain of God, as the prophet Isaiah says. Let us celebrate a new memorial today, a different story. May the peace of God be our guide, our hope, and our ever-present companion. As we seek that day where nation will not take up, nation, not take up sword against nation. And they will study war no more. Amen.